And let's pray. God, it is so good to come in and just worship this morning. The music, the words, as we sing, just lift our hearts and remind us that no matter what's happened this week, you are with us. No matter what we've brought with us into this service, you're with us. And you encourage us and you forgive us and you deliver us. So thanks for that reminder, God. Thanks for lifting our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are all really, really good at imitating. We start that skill when we're just babies. We imitate the smiles and the sounds and the words of our parents. And as we grow, it becomes the way that we learn survival skills. We learn how to become older children and adults. Coincidentally, that same skill of imitation also teaches new parents that they need to be more careful in what they say and do at home. You'll get that in a minute. Uh, Imitation becomes a survival skill for us when we get old enough that we go to school. Because we want to fit in. We develop this strong desire to belong. And from an early age, we recognize what it feels like to stand out and be different in the worst possible sense of those words. And we don't really like that. And we never really outgrow that uncomfortable feeling of not belonging. We don't outgrow it in school. We don't outgrow it in our job. We don't outgrow it in parties and social settings. We don't outgrow it in a new church. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward to not fit in. And so we learn how to adapt. We learn how to figure out how to dress, how to talk, how to act. We learn the cultures and the values when we're in a new setting. We learn how to imitate, how to fit in. The challenge comes, though, when there are multiple choices in a new environment. New groups, new people to imitate. When there are good and bad choices in our life. So in those situations, what do we choose? What will become our default? What's our go-to lifestyle? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 is the only place in all of the New Testament where we are told to imitate God in everything we do. When you let the immensity of that phrase sink in, you realize what a really, really big idea that is. To imitate the God of the universe in our everyday lives. I don't think there's ever been a bigger challenge. top of the morning to you? Really? Is that how the morning's going to go? I hope not. 
I don't know if you ever feel this way, but sometimes when I'm reading some of Paul's letters, I wonder if he was just having a bad day as he wrote. You ever feel that way? I mean, maybe he just started off his day wrong, he had a bad trip, he had a bad meal right before he sat down to write. Um, maybe something happened that ticked him off just before he picked up the pen to write. I don't know, because it feels like sometimes he just goes on a rant. And this feels like this might have been one of those passages, you know, because he was human after all. And so I wonder that because there is a decided turn in Paul's writings from chapter 4 to chapter 5. His teaching is much more direct. He doesn't mince words at all. He goes from the first three or four chapters where he talks about grace and God's provision and bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together into chapter 5, and he's just hammering in chapter 5. He doesn't beat around the bush. So what happened to Paul? Why is he writing like this? Well, if you dig into the passage and the history of the people he's writing to in their culture, you start to understand the reasoning behind his words. In order to understand this passage, you have to go back to the book of Acts in chapter 19 and understand the culture. In the city of Ephesus, there was this massive structure, the temple uh, to the goddess Diana. It was also called the temple to Artemis uh, by some. It was this incredible architectural structure. It was actually called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Worship of the goddess Diana was a huge part of life in Ephesus. People would travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Some simply as tourists to see the structure, others to come and worship Diana. And they brought with them an economic boom to this otherwise economically declining city. Tradesmen and hucksters made a good living selling their wares, not only outside the temple but up and down the road that led from the port to the temple. Cottage industries sprang up all around the temple. Lodging, food, people selling, offering, and souvenirs to tourists. The temple had its own treasury and a regional bank that had a reputation as being the most secure in the region. Starting to get the picture? The temple controlled commerce, communication, and cultural life for the city of Ephesus. That's why when Paul, in Acts 19, started to teach the people about turning from idols and false gods and starting to worship Jesus, a riot broke out in the city and nearly got Paul killed. He was messing not just with their faith, but with the entire culture. So it turns out Paul wasn't just on a rant. In Ephesians 5, he was making a very specific point. What he was saying was that when you begin to follow Jesus, it changes everything. If you adopt this new faith, it will cut across all aspects of your life. Paul was writing to remind these Christians years after he had been with them teaching that you're not to imitate the culture around you anymore. You're to imitate God. And if you do, it'll make a huge difference in your life, starting with things like how you deal with your desires. The Christians in Ephesus 
had it all backwards. Years of idol worship had taught them that people were objects to be used and used up. Specifically, temple worship included a number of young priests and priestesses who gave their bodies to anyone who could pay the price. The city accepted that practice and regarded it as normal and proper. It was a sign of devotion to the goddess Diana. It was an act of worship. And then add to the confusion, there were some new Christian teachers, false teachers, who'd come on the scene in Ephesus. They were the early form of the Gnostics, a religious group who claimed that any sin that involved your body, your physical body, was irrelevant to your, physical, to your spiritual life. So, put it plainly, and specifically to what was being taught in Ephesus, they were teaching that Christians could have as much sex with anyone they wanted and everyone they wanted because it has no relationship, no effect on your relationship with God. <laughs> so you have temple prostitutes and the city going, hey, fine with us. You have the Gnostics going, have sex with anybody you want as much as you want. doesn't impact your relationship with God as a Christian. Culture's pretty messed up in Ephesus. And Paul writes to set the record straight. Can you see why he was a little forceful with them as he wrote? He gives them a list of behaviors that he says should have no part in a Christian's life. Impurity in our words, our thoughts, our actions, our intents, our desires, and our passions. And the list he gives here is almost identical to the list of behaviors he gives in seven other letters that he wrote to individuals and churches in the New Testament. Basically saying that if you find yourself in this list, you're not alone. You're like a lot of other new Christians in the first century. We all struggle. But Paul singles out for the church in Ephesus sexual immorality and impurity because they were the prevailing problems in Ephesus. Not that they were any worse than any other sin. And Paul's language is really beautiful. And it's lost in the English translation. He indicates that sexual immorality and impurity really have to do with greed. And he calls it a ravenous selfishness of the heart. I want what I want when I want it, no matter what it does to the other person. And he issues a very strong challenge when he says that if we're imitating God, we should stay as far away from those kinds of things as possible. There shouldn't even be a hint of it in our lives. We should stay so far away from it that we wouldn't even mention it, let alone do it. He goes on to say that anybody who continues to practice an old vice, whether it's because it's a comfortable habit, or it's the path of least resistance, or because we've figured out a reasonable excuse for it in our lives and we're living with that excuse, if we do that, we have no share in God's kingdom. Those are hard words to hear. Hard words when we talk a, a lot about grace. But we have to understand there is a point as believers when we can frustrate the grace of God. We can't continue to sin willfully 
intentionally and expect God's grace to continue forever. Paul said it this way in Romans 6. He says, should we continue, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Don't let sin control the way you live. Don't give in to sinful desires. It's pretty plain. There has to be a partnership in our lives with grace. When we sin, we experience what the Bible calls godly sorrow for our sin. It's not destructive. But it causes us to want to change. It's what the Bible calls repentance. It causes us godly sorrow for what we've done and causes us to go to God and ask forgiveness and ask him to help us to change. But if we simply continue those sinister practices without repentance, Paul says that just ticks God off. We can't claim to follow Jesus and continue to live in our old ways. That's Paul's point. We have to deal with our desires. When we imitate God, Paul also says, we have to weigh our words carefully. And I would rather not talk about this if we could just move on. In verse 4, he uses three very specific words to describe this. He says, there shouldn't be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place among you. He's very specific when he addresses the everyday language we use. When we're at work, when we're at the gym, when we're doing whatever. Very specific. The first of which is a general term which could easily be translated obscenity or filthy talk. It's the kind of stuff that we used to say you wouldn't say around your grandma, but grandmas have toughened up. (laughs) Grandma talks that way sometimes now. (laughs) It's the kind of stuff that would make a morally sensitive person ashamed to say or be around. Paul says, don't do it. Then he says, don't be a part of foolish talk. Well, what is that? The scholar Plutarch said, it's it's best described as the kind of thing that comes from a drunken man. Does that help? It's the kind of stuff that just doesn't make any sense. Don't talk to hear yourself talk. Don't just babble on. Some of you are going, oh, I got a great example this morning. Okay, Don't just talk to hear yourself talk. Third word is tougher to translate, and most translations do. Thanks, Norm. I appreciate the affirmation. Uh, uh, Most translations do what the NIV does and translate this as coarse joking. It's the stuff that hangs right on the border of being inappropriate. It's double entendres. It's a phrase that's easily turned from something innocent into something raunchy. It's that off-color comment you think you can get away with. You with me? If there's any area in my life that I struggle with consistently, it's this. Somebody just booed me in the back. Um, <laughs> and I'm just keeping it real. For some reason, for some reason, when I was a sophomore in high school, I decided that I wasn't going to hang around with the kids that drank. I wasn't going to hang around with the druggies. But my personal rebellion was going to be foul language. That was the way I was going to push against my parents' morality 
and church going was that I was going to cuss like a sailor. I thought it made me tough. I thought it made me cool. So that's what I did for a couple of years in high school. Every swear word you could think of, I picked it up. I cussed like a sailor. And 35 years later, that habit haunts me to this day. It does. It's the main reason I've given up working on cars. If anything can cause me to lose my Christianity in a split second, it's working on a car. Can I get an amen? I heard some women. I remember once when our kids were little and I was working trying to replace a muffler on the car and I, I was at the point of my greatest frustration, which is usually about 10 minutes in, could not get the muffler off the car. And it was a very calculated move. I picked up a cheap... 99 cent plastic flashlight and was going to hurl it against a concrete wall just because I was so frustrated. And I was at that point of no return. You know? You know when you're committed to something? And I was right in mid-throw and a cuss word coming out of my mouth. And I heard the door from the basement of the house to the garage open behind me and I could not stop myself. My wife walked through the door and watched the whole thing happen. I stood there for what seemed like an eternity, not wanting to turn around. (laughs) Turned around, looked at her. All she said was, do you feel better? (laughs) I said, actually, I do. She She said, okay. She went back in the house. It induced incredible shame that I carry to this day. Um, So if you could pray for me, that'd be great. And we both went back to the projects for our day off. Truth is, I don't like that side of me. As funny as that story is. And I'll work on it. I work on it, and I'll probably work on it for the rest of my life because it's a deeply ingrained habit in my life. I try to change that because... It's the first thought and sometimes the first word that comes out of my mouth is what Paul calls filthy talk, foolish talk. And it ought not to be that way in my life. Jesus said that our language is a gauge of our spiritual condition. It said in Matthew 12, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Paul said, if everything is changed in our lives, and if we're imitating God, then we have to weigh our words. He's not talking about being a prude. He's not talking about being a bore. He's not talking about eliminating humor from our lives. Rather die than give up humor. He's just saying we don't have to do this with flippant talk and coarse jokes and crude language. He actually says... You're a child of the king. Those things are beneath us. He says, actually, all of our behavior, including our speech, should have to do with goodness and righteousness and truth. The last little bit of wisdom from Paul in this passage could best be summarized by quoting the eminent scholar Peter Townsend when he said, don't be fooled again. 
metaphor of light versus darkness that Paul uses is one of the most common and striking illustrations in the New Testament for the difference between what our life was like before we accepted Jesus and what it can be like now. Paul essentially says to us, don't let anyone fool you into going back to that old way of life and don't fool yourself into going back there. And he says it's not that tough to tell what behaviors in the darkness are like and behaviors of the light are like. To make right choices, he says, in verse 13, is not that tough. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything illuminated becomes a light. You ever had an idea that sounds really good in your head until you start talking about it with a friend? And then you realize, that's not so bright after all. (laughs) Eight or nine years ago, I got an email that intrigued me. A woman in the Ivory Coast of South Africa had been left a large sum of money by her late husband. (laughs) You're getting ahead of me. And she wanted my help to get it transferred to the United States to help churches here. Now, I worked for a not-for-profit that helped churches. And so I was thrilled that she wanted to transfer $5 million into an account. It sounded good. Now, cut me some slack. This was eight or nine years ago. Fortunately, I talked with a friend about it who said this was a brand new internet scam. And it was eight or nine years ago. You wouldn't believe the people today that I still talk to who I have to say that's an internet scam. In Ephesus, temple worship taught that the more wine you drank, the more connected to the gods you got. Drink more wine you get knowledge that's otherwise unobtainable. Let's put it simply, drinking heavily makes you incredibly wise, is what they taught. I've never seen that happen. I've been with people that think they're smarter when they drink more. Haven't you? St. Patrick's Day, you may be with them later today. Exposed to the light, the incredulity of an idea becomes visible. Light can expose bad ideas. Make it visible. See how that works? Sigmund Freud very perceptively talked about our penchant as people to keep certain areas of our life unchanged. Or as Paul said, to not expose them to the light. He compared them to nature preserves in large cities like Chicago where politicians fence off tracts of land and let them grow wild so people have a little piece of the old life to wander through and remember how things used to be. I think that as people, sometimes we cling to little pieces of wild land spiritually. Just so we can remember what our old life was like. And those little pieces of wild land, they make trouble for us when we visit them. And we know that they do. Because they pull us between the light and the darkness. Paul offers us a better way. Jesus offers us a better way.
Paul doesn't write here saying follow a bunch of rules. Rules never changed anybody. In fact, that was the whole point of the Old Testament. All the rules given there was to say rules, (laughs) you can't follow a bunch of rules and save yourself. And if you think this passage in Ephesians 5 is about following a bunch of rules, then we've all missed the point. The point is all the way back in the beginning. When Paul said, follow God's example as his dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. It's not rules that change people, it's love. It's God loving us enough to send his son. An extravagant love. It's us loving people enough to value them over our own selfish desires. It changes how we relate to them. And it's us loving ourselves enough to finally let go of those dark places in our spiritual life that we keep holding on to, keep going back to visit time and time again. Loving ourselves enough to stop choosing which parts we'll surrender to God and which parts we won't. Choosing little pieces to give to Him. Loving ourselves enough and trusting God enough to let Him have all of us once and for all so that He can change everything about us so that we are fully and finally His.